Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. And what I want to talk about this week is actually if we are in any meaningful way encountering the God of creation in a relational capacity, that at some point it dawns on you, this relationship is uneven, I don't belong here, I don't fit. If you're thinking about who God is, what deity is, in any meaningful capacity, then that has to dawn on you at some point, that it is coming into a relationship where it dawns on you, I don't fit, I'm not dressed for the occasion, I'm not right, I don't belong here. And so, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and we're going to, I'm just going to read one verse from Paul, and actually, if you don't know it, um, tonight is the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door, um, and kind of symbolically started the Reformation. The 95 Theses are actually up there, Brittany put them up, which is kind of awesome. Um, a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight was actually fundamental to the Reformation. If you're not familiar with Reformed University Fellowship, that's what we're called. Uh, we actually get our name from the fact that the theology of this group is rooted in Reformational theology. So tonight's kind of, you get some fundamentals. Uh, I'm just going to read one per- verse from Paul, and then we'll talk about it. It's from Second Corinthians. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who had known no sin, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words, as brief as they are, at the heart of them there is good news and there is hope for any and all kinds, and I pray that you would bless us with that good news, that we would not hear it and not simply understand it, but it would go deep in us, and that it would change us, and you would give us freedom, and we would be transformed. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. So one thing I'm sure everybody in this room has had a conversation about, and if not a conversation about, probably thought about at some point, is the imposter syndrome. Who's familiar with these words, or at least these principles, when you come to Stanford? Right? So what is the imposter syndrome? Anybody want to throw it out? Class participation. Yeah. Everyone belongs here except for you. Um, and what I want to actually, be, to begin tonight, what I want to do is actually contend with you that feeling that way at Stanford, right, about kind of who you are academically or socially, whatever it is, that somehow everyone else belongs and maybe you don't feel like you belong, or feeling that way in other contexts, maybe specific contexts here at Stanford, um, that's not really just the circumstances around your application. It's actually, that doesn't arise in our hearts because actually you really were the one that snuck one past the admissions committee. Because most people feel that. And rather what's happening when we come to a place like this and we encounter the performance pressure of this place and the large collection of high caliber people, that that's actually good circumstances for a deeper fear and a deeper spiritual condition to rear its head. And it prompts a deeper fear that we actually all are harboring all the time that I don't belong. I'm not the kind of person that belongs. That people will find out 
I don't belong, and everyone else does. I, I read an article today about this study done at UPenn on the uh, mental health of its students after they were having a, like a lot of mental health kind of crisis on campus. Here's what the study uh, here this quoting the study's conclusion: the pressures engendered by the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor can lead to stress, in some cases, distress. The task force report said, in turn, distress can manifest as demoralization, alienation, conditions like anxiety or depression. For some students, mental illness can lead to suicide. The mercilessness described here hints at a tragic escalation of a phenomenon experienced not just by college students, but by everybody. The pressure to perform, to make something of oneself, to become acceptable, to make a difference in the world, to justify one's own existence. It's a phenomenon that cannot help but reinvigorate narcissism because it throws us back on ourselves. And when we falter in an irreversible way, we inevitably view self-harm as an option. Here's the question. And the question is this. It's not just you. Why do we all feel this way? You might even feel it now, actually, like this evening and in this room at RUF, that like you're an imposter because you either think, A, I'm not religious, or B, I'm not religious or Christian-y enough. But it actually extends beyond to an overtly religious context. Right? The way the writer said it later in that article, it says, the near-universal obsession with busyness reveals that everyone is religious, including the secular world, which is why... In this article, he puts secular in quotes, not just those who believe in God or go to church. Works righteousness, namely the attempt to justify yourself by works of the law, be they actions or attributes, is the default mode of human operation. Not just for the select few who identify as religious. The law reigns over all creation. The question is not if you subscribe to the law. The question is which form of law do you prescribe to or subscribe to? We become the most aware of our deep unfitness when we come into a place where everyone seems like they belong. And Martin Luther, who kicked off the Reformation, would contend with us that until you discover Jesus, all of our energy, all of our resources, all of our time are devoted to justifying ourselves, making ourselves worthy, wiping away the stain, wiping away the mark, contending with our imposter syndrome. And so today marks the 500th anniversary. What's interesting is if you read those 95 theses, I actually read them today, 39 of them deal explicitly with the sale of indulgences. We're going to go back to your Western Civ class for a minute, but it's actually pertinent for tonight. 39 out of 95 deal with the sale of indulgences. Um, what the sale of indulgences were, we'll do a little history for just a second, is Luther encountered this preach, Johann Tetzel. Does this sound vaguely familiar? You encountered this in Western Civ? And he was this traveling Catholic priest uh, in the 1500s, and he was selling indulgences, explaining to the common people that if you were guilty, you could simply pay a fine to the church and be exonerated, and be atoned, or have the stain removed. The quote was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. You could literally buy your way into right standing. And the reality is we don't do anything so crude anymore, but the same practice is still going on in the lives of everybody here today, myself included. 
Our most precious resource is not money. The most precious resource of anyone in Silicon Valley is your time, right? And your focus and your energy. The priests that we give it to are not Roman Catholic. It's our professors. It's our employers. It's our parents. It's the opposite gender. It's our social groups. It's our cultural expectations. It's our coaches and so on. Hoping that if we give enough of our most valuable resource, we won't feel our unfitness anymore. Uh, there's a phenomenal movie that Christian Bale was in several years ago called The Mechanic. Has anybody seen this movie? Okay, go check it out. It's dark, just a heads up. You won't recognize Christian Bale because he loses, he gets down to 115 pounds for this role. And the movie is about this guy dealing with uh, the fact that he committed vehicular homicide in a car accident. But the movie is really about how he copes with guilt in that situation. And what his life is, is compulsively dealing with guilt. He is, all of his work is about dealing with guilt. All of his dieting is about dealing with guilt. It shows him compuls- compulsively washing himself, cleaning his apartment over and over and over again. And the foremost way that he deals with his unfitness, that he deals with his guilt, is to deny it. To hide from it. To not admit that it exists. And it has more and more power over him the more and more he he denies that it's there. If I get myself, if I get my resume, if I get my relationships, if I get my religion in order, and then if I can drown out the existential unfitness that plagues my sense of self, then I'll be free. That's what we're aiming for in all of this is freedom, right? We're, we're friending for freedom. We're outraging for freedom. We're exercising for freedom. We're punishing others for freedom. We're working for freedom. The freedom is the thing we're all aiming for. I'm not talking about political freedom. I'm talking about the personal freedom from the need to continually justify ourselves. And we all want to silent. We all want to silence the voice. And we all believe that there's an enough threshold right around the corner that you're almost there. And the voice will finally be quiet. You won't feel the stain anymore. You won't feel the unfitness anymore. And what I'd invite you to do is, is for a second consider that things like our comparison practices that we enjoy doing, our condemnation practices that we enjoy doing, those things are sometimes about justice. Those things are often, often, often about making us feel better by virtue of finding worse villain than ourselves. One of the key ways you can become innocent in your own eyes is finding worse people than you. When is it going to be enough, right? When will the stain no longer haunt us? When will we finally feel okay? When will the fear of exposure die? We all have an enough threshold. Have you grappled with the fact that that's a lie? That you... You will probably get to your enough. This is a room of capable people. You have a threshold of what you think will be enough. Moral enough, accomplished enough, social enough. There's a good chance you're going to get there. Have you grappled with the fact that that threshold is lying to you? And that when you get there, there won't be peace. The thinnest people feel the most ugly. Why do smart people feel stupid? Why do strong people feel weak? I had a wealthy friend who in a really beautiful, honest moment, one of the wealthiest people I know, recently said, there are always people with more money than me. Why do you think the most powerful person in the world is so radically insecure? 
it's actually because we can't justify ourselves, and the more that we try to, the more desperate we become, even in spite of our successes. Uh, the movie Chariots of Fire, you might have heard this quote before, is about two runners for England in 1924 Olympics, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. They ran the 100 meter, and, and it kind of chronicles their friendship and how their careers went differently. And Harold Abrams said this about his running career in the movie. He said, I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm in forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And in one hour's time, I'm going to be out there again. I'm going to raise my eyes and I'm going to look down the corridor that's four feet wide. And with 10 lonely seconds, I have to justify my existence. But will I? Y'all, it doesn't stop. You can't justify yourself. The threshold will not suffice. And the more you try, the worse it will get. Sometimes, Lord willing, if y'all have children, when they're small, and you're feeding them something, all these like pasty peas and sweet potatoes and stuff that you feed, like uh, infants and everything like that, and they, you, you encounter these cute moments where they spill some food on their bib, their hands are covered in peas and in sweet potatoes and all that kind of stuff. And their instinct is to wipe the food off their bed. And when they do it, what they do is they make the mess worse. They get it everywhere. They get it in their hair. They get it all over their face. Right? You can't use something that's dirty to clean something that's dirty. The more that we try to make ourselves the right kind of person, the worse it will get. And not just for us, but for, not just for you individually, but for all of us. You already got into Stanford. That is the most significant academic accomplishment a 17-year-old can do, can achieve on this planet today. But it didn't work, did it? Did it work? It didn't work. It didn't silence the doubt. It didn't cover the stain. You came here and felt like an imposter. And in fact, the more you believed Stanford would save you, the more anxious you've become since you got here because it didn't. And now you're off trying to save yourself a different way with a new threshold. It's getting worse. Everybody here is more anxious now than they were when they were 16 and 17. Every time we seek to establish our unrighteousness, set that threshold in front of us and say, if we accomplish that, the voice will be silenced. That's the biblical word for making yourself right, seeking our own righteousness. Here's the other thing it does. It, it inevitably leads to the judgment and condescension of others because the second you believe that by your own efforts you've elevated and improved yourself, then all of a sudden what you do is you look at the other people who haven't taken the same course of action, who haven't seen the world the way you see it, who haven't worked as hard as you, who haven't been as religious or as moral or as activist or as enlightened or as committed as you, and now you feel righteous in your judgment, hostility, and harshness towards them. The best thing we can be in that situation is patronizingly paternalistic, right? The more that we believe we can save ourselves and make ourselves right and wipe away the stain and the unfitness, the more we will actually condescend and dismiss and despise. All oppression that occurs is born out of the belief that there are good people and bad people in the world. And as soon as you believe you've done the things to elevate yourself above others, and join the class of good people, you've positioned yourself to be an oppressor and you've imbued yourself with a false sense of moral superiority so that you actually feel justified as an oppressor. 
This is why one of the chief confounding and confusing marks of someone who is being transformed by the gospel is that they do the most unconscionable thing imaginable. They love their enemies. That's the one thing everyone agrees that we should never do, is love bad people. In believing that we could actually justify ourselves enough to erase the stain, we're actually smearing the stain around, we're making it worse for ourselves and for others. When you are tired of trying to prove yourself and others, prove yourself to you, prove yourself to others, and tired of trying to prove yourself to God, Jesus has these words for you. Paul, in his other letter to Galatians, says this, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, in Jesus, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery Paul is talking about is the slavery of self-justification. That is the freedom Jesus comes to offer you. So what is the solution? The solution is 2 Corinthians 5.21. The one who knew no sin became our sin so that we become the righteousness of God. God's love, actually I would wager or or argue all love, fundamentally expresses itself in the principle of substitution. To love someone is to substitute yourself in the place of their pain and in their sorrow and in their unfitness. If you're going to love someone who's lonely, you have to go into their loneliness. If you're going to love someone that's poor, you you have to take on some of their poverty to bring them out of it. Love is always substitution, and that's exactly what Paul is explaining right here and how Jesus loves you. The only solution that offers justification, that offers salvation to anyone is substitution. The cross is substitution. Jesus became our sin so that we would become His righteousness. This is the way the prophet Isaiah says it. He bore away our grief. He carried away our sorrows. Jesus was stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds we are healed. How can we be healed by Jesus' wounds? Only if His wounds are the way that our debt to justice is paid. If instead of giving out our life, paying with our life, unsuccessfully to satisfy all the priests and the gods we serve today, He gives His life as a substitute payment to the one true God in our place. It's like this. It's like as if we had an enormous bill that we've been trying to pay off for our entire lives and we've been trying to pay off with our entire lives. And when you get the statement, Jesus scratches your name off the top of the bill and writes in His name, Your debt is removed from you. He assumes it. That's substitution. That's Paul's point. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's the heart of the cross. When we've been trying to erase the stain, when we've been trying to pay the debt of guilt, it hasn't been working, and it's actually been heightening our insecurity and our anxiety and our comparison and our judgmentalism and our tribalism. We can't get rid of the stain. We're spreading it around more. And we're misunderstanding a fundamental rule of cleaning. The way our pastor in South Carolina used to say it is to make something that is dirty clean, something clean has to get dirty. That substitution, that is Jesus' love for you. He becomes our sin so we may become right with God. This means in Christ that when God looks at you, 
He doesn't see the stain. He doesn't see the unfitness. He doesn't hear the voice accusing you. He sees Christ. At the cross, when He looked at Christ, He saw our stain. And Jesus carried it away to the grave. And it no longer marks you. And you no longer have to scrub. And you no longer have to pay with your life to make yourself acceptable or to make yourself fit. Don't live for the approval of your peers. Don't live for the approval of your parents. Don't live for the approval of Silicon Valley or Stanford. Don't live for your own approval. We are all fickle judges, both of each other, but even of ourselves. And we're very rarely merciful to each other, but also to ourselves. You have all the approval and all the acceptance you could ever dream of in Christ because He pays your debt. He carries away your unfitness. He took it to the grave in your place. When you come before the judgment of God, the great judge, he looks at you with joy and he looks at you with pride. There is no appellate court in his justice system. There is no recrimination. He harbors no suspicion about you. There is no condemnation. There's no possible future condemnation for those who are in Jesus. God is just and that means sin can't be paid for twice. So if Jesus paid it, you don't owe on it. Your stain has been carried away to the grave by Jesus and His righteousness has been applied to you. This is the heart of God's love. And you've never really engaged the God of the Bible until you realize that actually the hardest thing to believe and the most objectionable aspect of Christianity is the unfairness of grace. Because it means, and what Paul's telling us, is Jesus chooses to suffer the injustice of paying our debt, a debt he never incurred and didn't know, so that we would actually be spared justice and instead received into God's presence. What happens when that reality begins to break into your heart? We could talk about that for so long. It means you are now free from the terror of any judgment, whether from Stanford, Pierce, yourself, You're free from the terror of any judgment. You cannot be disqualified because the great judge has accepted you as his child. You are no longer threatened by criticism or engaging your own shortcomings. You can hear the bad news about you. Right? You become charitable because you realize that in the wealth of grace shown to you, you actually want to show it to others. It means you do good things that might even cost you a lot to people who don't deserve it. You actually see and seek outsiders because it's what Jesus did for us. You actually work because you enjoy it and you see it as joyful service to God and to others instead of how you prove your worth. You begin to rest. You feel less, less fear. You no longer have a double life. You're a good one and then you're a bad or embarrassing one because you don't have a reason to hide anymore. You forgive enemies. You don't vilify the people who you perceive to be worse than you. You actually see yourself in them and you have compassion knowing the only hope that any of us have is grace. You stop worrying if I'm Christian or religious or moral enough. All of these are the kind of things that begin to slowly break out into our lives. So what do you do? Close with application. It's boring. Maybe it's not exciting. Uh, maybe it's too abstract, look to Christ. I think one of the 
great misunderstandings of the human experience is that the difference between Christians and non-Christians are that Christians have belief and non-Christians don't have belief. I think that's wrong. I think everyone believes something. You believe in whatever you look to to erase the stain or to grant you remission or atonement or grant you a verdict that you are worthy. And most likely, we all really have a collection of things that we believe in that we believe will do that for us. The ancient world was polytheistic, right? All kinds of little gods. We're really not that different. We're looking to a collection of several different goals, several different competencies we want to master, several different thresholds or relationships or achievements or behaviors or bodies that if we can kind of meet all of their goals and satisfy their demands, then we'll have peace. That's a belief system that I just described. Those are what you look to. Look to Christ instead. When you're in doubt about yourself, about the future, about who you are, look to Christ. He's sufficient. He's made you right with God. When you fall, don't redouble your efforts to be better. Look to Christ. When you're proud and you're winning, look to Christ. When you're needy, look to the cross. When you feel no need, look to the cross. And you... I understand. So what does it mean to look to? What I mean is do exactly what you're already doing. Just redirect your gaze. So Christian, what do you look to when you discover you aren't enough, when your shames come up, when your failures advertise themselves? Do you redouble your efforts with, I just need to work on? Turning your focus back in on your own behavior. I need to behave. I need to get involved in Christian disciplines. I need to read my Bible. The more that you believe that working on those things will silence your voices of fear and doubt and shame, the further you are from peace. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look and see that He has made you right with God and that He's paid the price. Christians and skeptics alike. What do you do when you are confronted with your shortcomings and your shames, your failures, your physical ones, your academic ones, your social ones, your psychological ones, your moral ones, your spiritual ones? Here's the thing. You already look somewhere in that moment. Everyone has a belief muscle that you've always been exercising. I'm not asking you to exercise a new muscle you've never developed before. You've been exercising your entire life. is extremely well-developed. The question is not how to start to believe. You already know how to do that. The question is, will you look to Christ? Will you begin to believe in Jesus? I'll close with an author's summary of Luther's teaching on this. He said this, Luther wrote, The law says, do this and it's never done. Does that sound or feel familiar? The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in Jesus, and everything is already done. The pressure to self-justify has been removed. It's been replaced with freedom. Freedom to die, freedom to live, freedom to fail, freedom to succeed, the freedom to love, the freedom to serve, the freedom to wait, freedom to laugh, the freedom to cry, the freedom to sit idle, and the freedom to get busy, and the freedom to play. That's what Christ offered you. Let's pray.